This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Our guest this week is a singer, songwriter, recording artist, music historian, TV host, radio host, and an occasional actor, a former teen idol, and a genuine rock and roll legend. At the tender age of 15, he became the lead singer and frontman of one of the most popular and successful recording acts of all time, Herman's Hermits, with hits like I'm Into Something Good, Can't You Hear My Heartbeat, There's a Kind of Hush, Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter, and I'm Henry VIII, I Am. They sold millions of records, scored 18 top 40 hits, performed to arenas packed with screaming fans, and in the year 1965, at the peak of their success, they outsold even the Beatles. He appeared in feature films as well as hit TV shows like The Ed Sullivan Show, Laverne and Shirley, Married with Children, Quantum Leap, American Idol, and has starred on the Broadway stage and on national tours. And his popular rock and roll history show, Something Good, with Peter Noon, can be heard on the Channel 60s on 6 on Sirius XM. In a long and impressive career, this man has worked with and shared the stage and screen with and rubbed elbows with Elvis Presley, Danny Kaye, Liberace, Jackie Gleason, Tina Turner, Tom Jones, the Bee Gees, the Who, the Rolling Stone, Jimmy Page, David Bowie, the Hollies, Louis Armstrong, John Lennon, the Supremes, and Paul McCartney. And as Frank likes to say, that's barely scratching the surface. Bloody hell. (laughs) (laughs) And he's entered his seventh decade in show business. He's still out there performing with upcoming live concerts and appearances all over the U.S. and Canada. Please welcome one of the key figures of the cultural explosion known as the British Invasion and a man who says he was told to stay away from drugs by none other than Keith Richards, <laughs> the legendary Peter Noon. <laughs> that's that's a, I'm out of here. That's that's the longest 
most incredible introduction I've ever had in my life. And, and not only was I told to stay away from drugs, I was threatened by Keith Richards. He said, we will come and find you and beat you up. <laughs> <laughs> if we ever find out you're smoking pot or anything like that, we're going to come and find you and we're going to beat you up. He <laughs> <laughs> couldn't catch me now. Now, I, I want to put you on the spot first thing into the interview. You did, uh, you acted in Pirates of Penzance. Yeah. Now, either I've... with the script or without it. Can you sing? You don't have to sing the whole song, obviously, but some of uh, modern major general. I am the very model of a modern major general. I've information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I quote the kings of England, and I quote the facts historical from Mamelon and Waterloo in order categorical. Can I have another go? I am the very model of a modern major general of information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I quote the facts of England, and I know the facts historical from Mamelon and Waterloo in order Ah, Almost. great. Almost. Great. And it wasn't even a song he did in the I, show. No, but I would, I always wanted, you know, everyone wants to play of course. Fagan in Oliver and they want to play the major general in that. I always got the leading man role, you know, always, which is like, oh, you know, all guys go, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. You know, like, oh, is there not one maiden breast? You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> You played Frederick. Yeah, the yes. Frederick. It's, just... You know, I was good at it because it's like uh, the director led me to a person that I could be, you know, in the play. So it was okay. I I'm was... sorry I didn't see you. I saw the first one with Kevin Klein and Linda oh, Ronstadt. But you, you, you replaced... Uh, Rick Smith. Rick Smith, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you did it with Jim Belushi and yeah. Pam Dauber? Jim Belushi. Do I have that correct? Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, Jim Belushi. And I, I didn't do it with Pam. I can't. Oh. I did it with... Um, Oh, Maureen Was it McGovern? Maureen McGovern? Yeah, yes. On Broadway, yeah. Yes. Fantastic. Got singer. to be a morning after. Yeah. There's got to be a morning after. <laughs> yeah. My mum's favorite song, that. That and Let's Twist Again. Oh, both good choices. Yeah. Okay, sing a little of Let's Twist Again. <laughs> Let's Twist Again, like we did last summer. Come on, lads. Shake it up, baby. <laughs> That's my mother. She would. She would. She thought it was cool to say the words. Shake it up, baby. <laughs> oh, I can't get enough of that funky stuff. <laughs> but there you go. She was from Liverpool, and they were all kind of dropped. Now I just heard a story yesterday that you told. I, well, you were working at the uh, legendary Abbey Road Studios as a and, lad. What? As a lad, I was there. Yes, uh, it was called. And, and the yeah. Beatles at the same time were working. Yeah, well, at. they were in. They were in another room. And, yes. And I, I always, I was so young and naive <laughs> that I thought I could just walk over and. Be one of the back, the boys. So, so I'd see, I'd see like John Lennon coming out of the thing, and I'd sort of ease over towards him, you know, like like, and, and I go, uh, "Hello, John." And he goes, "Who are you?" Uh, and I'd say, "Oh, stop it, stop it." And he said, "Okay, hermit." And I say, "What, what, what are you lads doing here?" And he go, "Recording." <laughs> 
<laughs> so mean. And what when I first met him, he was like, I was a big fan of the Beatles, but I got to be in the same room of them as they were often because I was in a band as well. So you'd think that because you're in a band that they would accept you as one of the boys, but I so I <laughs> I was standing we did Top of the Pops and and I I feel like I know them because I've seen them so many times and not actually spoken to them. So <laughs> I'm standing there like and he goes, uh, nice suit, Hermit. <laughs> <laughs> he always called me Hermit, which really was jarring. Uh, uh, nice suit, Hermit. Oh, thank you. Do they make it in your size? <laughs> oh, that, that and I, quick as repartee, was not my thing, but I said, yeah, and my tailor can make collars too. Because <laughs> <laughs> these stupid jackets with no yeah. collar on. And uh, I think that was endearing to him, somebody who had the balls to give him something yeah. back. And uh, the next time I see him, it's like, I mean, I get in a lift, an elevator, and I've gone to this place because I know he goes there. It's called the Adlib Club. And it's like a private club and it's just drinking and lots of pretty girls. And I was famous for having lots of pretty girls in my entourage. And uh, I think that was also an attraction to him. <laughs> uh, Herman, Hermit, the Hermit. had, a, had a, a lot of attractive young girls with him. And so, so I'm, I get in the lift at the Ad Lib Club and standing in the lift is um, Terry Doran, who's this hard, like dangerous man from Liverpool, who's also John Lennon's manager, minder, hard, keep away from my boy here. You know, don't come anywhere near this man. And he talk like that, you know, don't, don't start trouble here. And, and he'd also... John had showed up in like a psychedelic painted Rolls Royce. So that's very inconspicuous, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Yes. Uh, not under the radar at all. So, it, and I get in the lift and we go up and we get out and I'm 17. I'm not even allowed in this club, but I'm with one of the Beatles. So nobody questions. I'm not with them. I just have to enter at the same time as them. So and we, I get in and I'm stuck. I'm standing in this like nightclub and... John Lennon feels sorry for this kid who's sort of stood there by their table. He says, the last one to sit down is an egg. Which I don't know what that means, but I mean, I never wanted to be an egg, so I guess I should sit down. So I sat down. I sat down and this woman comes over, this cocktail waitress. See, woman, she was probably 22. But when you're 15, 16, 17... Sure. 22-year-olds are like old people. So, and, and she comes and she looks me straight in the face. And she she knows I'm not 18. And she says, there's a two-drink minimum. Like, you probably can't afford to have a drink here, can't. There's a two-drink <laughs> minimum. So John says, Grace, I'll have two Bacardis and he'll have two Cokes. So she comes over, like, and she, because he's one of the Beatles, you can't refuse him. So he comes over and he does that magic trick where he gives me one of those little bottles, those airline-type-sized bottles, Bacardi's and takes one of my Cokes. And I sat down and had a Bacardi and Coke. And I said, I'll get the next ones. <laughs> <laughs> she goes, I said, I'll have two Cokes and he'll have two Bacardi's, please. <laughs> and I became your, like your a drinking first, Your partner. first drink. But you well, it wasn't my first drink, <laughs> believe me. I was already pretty good at drinking. I thought there was a competition going on. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. that you could only win. 
and at at Abbey Road, one time you were looking at a recording that the Beatles made, and oh, oh yes, oh that's a fun story. I stupidly, <laughs> I thought they wanted an opinion, and uh, I almost got myself beaten up because yeah. it came to this bit in this. I'm, I'm standing there, can't oh, listen. As a kid, you know, I'm very naive, and it's it's you get much more done if you pretend to be even more stupid than you actually are. <laughs> and I, so um, we were we were kind of in a band, so you think that all bands want to share stuff. So, so he says, so "Can I can I listen to what you're doing?" Like thinking they'd say, "Well, let's listen to yours first, You know, even I'll show you mine if you show yeah, me yours. Yeah. So, okay, okay, and I step in this door, and there's like, ah. Oh. I mean, it is actually absolutely, it's all unbelievable stuff. But I think they'll think more. They'll think I'm much smarter than I really am if I say something critical. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, uh, you're not leaving that do, 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 do in, are you? And they basically uh, threw me physically, like held me, pushed me against the wall and opened the door and pushed me out. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't want to fuck this off. And I'm out. And But then there was also a time you saw your name. Like oh, they yeah. had written a song. Just, oh, yeah. A Beatles song just for you. There's lots of stuff happened. It wasn't even called Abbey Road then. It was on Abbey Road. It's yeah. called Manchester. So it's called EMI Studios. And so I'm. Everybody's getting a song written. Scylla Black has got a song written for 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 her, and she's and Tommy Quickly and Billy J Kramer. Billy J Kramer and the foremost. Everyone's yeah. getting a song written. Everybody from the scene that I'm from has had a song written by Lennon and McCartney, and they're all they're all bloody number ones. Everything that they do is like ah, even even Scylla Black's bad songs are being number one because John Lennon has written them. So I'm thinking as I say, going out and see. Oh my God! Look. Fellas, look, look, they've written a song for me. And they go, what, where? And there's all these boxes with song titles on it. Look, look, for noon. And they go, it was for no one. <laughs> Good try. Can you I believe mean. that? <laughs> I read the rude word noon. It's an honest mistake. No, no, no one. That and of was- course... It was much better than the song that they never wrote for me. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about seeing them for the, for the first time. Oh, the, it, was, it was kind of... Was in the field near your grandmother's house? Exactly. How do you know this stuff? So uh, what happened was we, me and this guy called Alan Wrigley. Can I swear on your show? Please. Yes. So, we insist. Please. I don't normally swear, but it's part, it's in, it has to be in his words. So we, we're practicing and we go... And we can hear someone else practicing in the distance... And, you know, in those days, every street had, like, at least three groups and 11 guitar players. Every street in Manchester, every street in Liverpool, every street in Newcastle had at least 11 bands. It was like New Jersey today. So, <laughs> and, and, and we can hear this, and it's like, ding, ding, ding. Who's that? So me and Alan Wrigley get up, and, and we go looking, following the sound. There's another group somewhere. And we cross a field, and then in the next field across, on a stage that is about 18 inches high, the Beatles are doing what we thought was practicing, but it was a sound check because they were only practicing the words one, two, one, two. And, and it's the Beatles practicing. 
So we go, oh, it's the Beatles, you know. You got... We've seen them live before, but we've never seen them with this new drummer who's on a bit of the stage that's even higher than the band. So I've called a drum riser, but we'd never seen one like that. Only big-time drummers at a thing. So I said, oh, what a, who does he think he is? You know, Sidney Stapleton or something? So so we, we, stay, we stay, we're going to watch the Beatles, and, and they come on stage, and they're in their first song. I can't remember even what the song was, but halfway through the song, this bass player, he was the bass player in this new group that we just put together, Pete Novak and the Heartbeats. And I, he's looking at the band, and I'm looking at the band, and you, we've never seen anything quite like this. And he goes, Pete, what, what? We're fucked. It's over. He wants to quit show business because he's seen the future doesn't include anything that he's ever going to be. He knows in his head that if he practices every day for the next 35 years, wow. 11, 12 hours a day, he's not going to be as good as any one of those Beatles. So he quits the business. That minute, that is the last you ever see of him with a guitar. And I'm inspired. <laughs> I go, <laughs> I'd love to be in a band who have fun with each other like that. You know, these guys that I've got in my band, they're not really that fun. Look at the way they, the Beatles interacted with each other and they're, they're, they're like singing and, <laughs> you were just 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then John Lennon like, is the lead singer of this band, this part of the Beatles thing. The lead singer is this guy called John Lennon. And at the end of the show, he steps off the stage to the right and he talks to boys. There are boys in the audience. No one's ever seen a band who have boys who are fans. It's the beginning of that bit where I think the Fabian thing, you know, this pullover that you gave to me isn't really hitting a home run with any boys, you know, because they don't, those kind of boys haven't been born yet who want a pullover from a guy. So... <laughs> So, That's interesting. Yeah. So there's this new thing that, like, rock and roll thing where rock people can connect with boys in the audience because he's standing at the side of the stage talking to, like, a bunch of 15-year-old boys because he knows that they're going to need a following if they're going to be a big band. And I go, wow, that's incredible because the only people I know who do that I like the Everly Brothers who you see, you know, you go backstage and hang around the stage door. The Everly Brothers come out and Phil is nice to everybody and Don's kind of quiet, but they talk to all their fans. Yeah, yeah, thank you for coming. And I go, wow, they've got all that package and look. So they were and polished they, entertainers by... by the uh, they, they were still to this... It's it, it scary because mm -hmm. they had everything kind of what you would call perfection. All the vocal... You know, they didn't have monitors. Right. There was no... They just played with each other. It was like one total thing. It's inexplicable, really, but and, and there was so much joy, um, excuse me, amongst them on the stage that you say, I'd love to be in a situation like that where I like all the people and when they play a bum note, everyone laughs. And, <laughs> and there's all this kind of joy going on, like, like, a, like a soccer team winning the cup kind of vibe you know this and and it's very it, for young boys that was very inspirational and the girls all liked it because they were all cute guys and they they had non-rock and roll names remember it's like george they were they were names everyone was called elvis and billy fury and adam faith and georgie fame and here's these guys like george harrison it sounds like a working man you know it sounds like a, a, a 
potato digger almost, you know what I mean? So <laughs> I say potato digger because my parents only went to England because they couldn't find a potato where they lived. And <laughs> so they swam. <laughs> yeah, so so it was, a, it was a very refreshing time in the music business because they changed all the rules about lighting and spotlights and, and choreography because until then, all British bands had a couple of steps that they did, the Shadows and Johnny Kidd and the Pirates would like, oh, and they'd had, they'd had choreography. Here's these guys who just say, we got all these tunes that we'd like to show you how they're supposed to be played. And... We can smile during all these songs because we truly enjoy music. You know, we're not playing to anybody else's rules. We've just created this new thing and we've been in Germany playing to a bunch of arseholes for ages and ages and ages who don't even look at us when we're playing. They just come for a bevy and here we go. Look at this. These, these people, look at look the audience. They're, they're coming to the front of the stage and look, those two idiots at the back who are going to quit show business because we're that good. <laughs> and it was a magic moment and it was in a field. It was yeah. called the Ermstead. It was Abbotsford Park, which is a little park in Ermston, which is no one's ever heard. It's where the River Mersey begins is in this, this little town, Ermston. Where your grandmother first put you up on stage. Same place. Yeah. That's where we lived. We lived. I lived with my grandparents. My parents are from Liverpool, but I, I, my parents were at university when I was a kid. I, me and my sister lived with my grandparents because my parents... It was this thing called the war that ended in 1945, that one. We've, all, we've always had one going. We've always got a good war going somewhere. So my parents were in it, and my mother was sent to a, the countryside because um, they were bombing Manchester because they thought there was stuff in Manchester and, and, and Liverpool. They were bombing it, and they sent the women and the children out into the thing and they put all the guys, they gave all the guys a bayonet and sent them off there, you know, off you go. My dad was in the Air Force and he was gone. And then at the end of the war, like about 1953, they tried to recover all these people's lives that had been destroyed, you know, just messed up yeah. with the war. So my dad went back to Edinburgh University and I, had, I can't remember what his degree got. My mother went to Cambridge and lots of the people in my neighborhood in Manchester and Liverpool live with their grandparents. It was just part of the culture. And you know, there's no better person to live with than your grandparents because they're usually deaf. <laughs> <laughs> they're deaf and they go to bed at nine o'clock and they sleep. What they sleep that? without any ambient or anything. They just go to sleep. So you can bring girls in, you can sleep with girls, you can have a drummer in the living room playing as loud as John Bonham and they don't Great. wake up. What was this I heard about your grandmother burning someone's house down? Oh, don't. She never did it. Oh, okay. She just wanted people to believe it oh, was her. Okay. <laughs> she never did it. People believed it. Watch out for that noon family. They're crazy. They're crazy. She's from Ireland, you know, you and she's crazy. Threat. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You know, it's funny when you said about the joy of the Beatles, because 
I, it reminds me like old, like the cool rock star snarled. They all had yeah. an angry look on them. Well, yeah, yeah. It just, it was different. It, they weren't, it was Elvis. You know, they had odd names. They were not names that normal people had. They were sort of put on a pedestal and idolized. Beatles had the opposite kind of vibe. You didn't need to idolize them. You just wanted to be one of them. And, Interesting. And yesterday, Frank sent me a clip I had never seen before, and I knew it was going to be a clip that I would like. Okay. You were... Uh, Herman's Hermits were playing in front of the royal family. Wow. Oh, yeah. I knew you'd and, like that clip. I, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I knew. I said, Do you oh, remember this? He knows. Yeah. Was it London Palladium? Yeah. Yeah. Herman's Hermits performing If I Were a Rich Man. Can you believe it? And we didn't know that that was not appropriate. I sent it to Paul Schaefer, How about too. We I loved name. it. How <laughs> yeah, You does a blood of my mate. And you know what? That's right. It was the... I, I called when I saw it recently. I had never. I didn't know there was a. I didn't know they even recorded it. I know they televised stuff, but most BBC dumped all that stuff a long time ago. They they sold the tapes to someone, so I, I didn't know it existed. And I watched it, and I, I had to call all the hermits. You know, I don't speak to them often. I called them. I said, I said, Carl, Carl, have you ever seen that Royal Command performance that we did? <laughs> He said, "No." I said, "You've got to watch it on YouTube." I said, "Let me just let me just ask you a question. When we did it, did anyone come up to you, like your mum or or one of the managers or or anybody? Did anybody come up to you and say, bloody hell, man! I didn't know you could do that. You were brilliant.'" And he goes, "Well, no, no one said that." I said, well, let me tell you now. I just watched it. You were brilliant. They were not dancers. They didn't do choreography. We sat for four weeks. We hated every minute of it. <laughs> we hated because they were trying to change us into from this kind of punk band into what we thought was the Bachelors, which was a mom and dad's kind of cabaret band. And the guy who put that show together and did all the choreography had done the Bachelors, you know, Ramona, I hear the mission bells are calling. All that stuff, you know, which we didn't want to do any of that. We were not, we were not Caro, me or mine or anything. We were the opposite of that. We were like, you know, woke up this morning feeling fine. Whew. You know, that was our thing. And I couldn't believe it. I think we were brilliant. And I, I, it was the Queen Mother. And, and I didn't know much about any of that. I'd seen the coronation and I remembered for the coronation we were all at my school we were given a banana we, we've never seen a banana before is, is this 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 is all going through my head as I, I'm singing if I were a rich man there's a queen mum that's wow. the queen's mum and do you remember 1953 to, for the coronation street they came for the school and they gave all the kids a banana and we and like some teacher explained how this was the perfect package it had a and you just peeled it off and ate the insides and then you threw away the package. And God, this school was called the English Martyrs, by the way, the, and God had packaged this so well that they could ship it from, where, we don't know where it came from, this banana, probably <laughs> Panama, who knows, we don't know. But, but we peeled it, you know what I mean, and, and we ate, and it was like, this is a memorable thing for English people because fruit was non-existent. My mum and dad had a ration book, and my dad used to trade his petrol ration for cigarettes. That's all I can remember, and I, I remember... The, 
like every Friday night, we'd get a quarter pound of chocolate caramels on the ration book. And that was a big deal. Chocolate caramels. Now I buy them in the hotel and eat two boxes. <laughs> you know, they've always got them. in. So the that tr- was all from World War Two. Yeah. From, we were all re- uh, having we, everybody, ration. Everybody was from World War Two. I, I used to run into John's dad. And I say, you know, and you know, it, he, of course he slammed the door in your face because, you know, this is drinking talk, you know, yeah, yeah. getting pissed, it's called. And when you get pissed, you have great information to fix other people's problems, you know. So I'm pissed. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, kind of normal that you... Oh, pissed means drunk in England. Yeah. And so so uh, I'm drunk and I, you know, probably, you know, deserted him and, and running off. To see and not coming back probably hurt his feelings. Uh, leaving him with his, well, his, his auntie Mimi, you know, it's all kind of, I'd be disturbed by that. I mean, my parents went away, but they were, at least they went to university, didn't go sailing around the world. And he said, well, you can't understand, Pete, you got to understand that it was boring being at home. What do you mean? Boring. Well, you know, it's boring. You know, when you're on the ship with the sailors, you can play cards and you can drink all night. And you go, so, you should have been in a band. <laughs> so, so John Lennon's father was explaining to you why he... No, he was sad because... He was sad. He was, he was, he'd he gone was, out to John's was, house. He in, was regretful. And, and, he, and he couldn't understand that John wouldn't deal with him. But he I was see. Like, he, Fred was trying to be a pop star. He was like, I think he had Tom Jones' manager. <laughs> you know Gordon I mean? Hills? Yeah. <laughs> was like managing this uh-huh. Beatles dad. Wow. And now I want to put you on the spot again. No, it was te- could... it's called tears. You know, we're Irish people. If, if you... We're all Irish, all those people in rock and roll in England. They've all got some Irish virus, and we were all getting drunk <laughs> and sharing... Our secret. Every family has a secret. My grandmother burned people's houses down. That's a secret. <laughs> Gil, you were close to your grandmother. Oh, yeah. yeah. She lived to 104. When did she go deaf? <laughs> Very early. Yeah. Yeah, see, if you live with your grandmother and well, they're deaf, in this you, case. Don't, you don't have to communicate that much. Now, you I... know, they make sandwiches and everything. I got to put you on the spot again. Oh, I gosh. need to hear a little of If I Were a Rich Man. <sighs> if I were a rich man, all day long I'd giddy giddy gum. If I was a wealthy man, oi, <laughs> I wouldn't have to work hard. <laughs> That's number two. I, I didn't realize that was really politically incorrect, especially in front of the Queen Mother. <laughs> In this life, one thing counts in some... I mean, it's all wrong. There's no material for the show, Pete. <laughs> you know, that was the last... That was the only time I've ever done that. It's, on, you, it's Fiddler, on YouTube. Everybody can see it. Oh, Fiddler on the Roof. Herman's Hermit's Fiddler on the Roof. And, like, and Jerry Herman. You loved I knew he would. I did. You did were... You say, oh, oh, yeah, where you dancing. had your arms connected. Oh, um, but dancing, like Greek dancing like, men. Like, yes. Yes. yes we hated every wage, second of it. It was fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> and, you'd leave, and, and you know what's great? The, 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 the hermits were like counting. One, yeah. two, three, four. One, two, three, four. And you... They'd never, ever, ever done a dance step. We, that was, was not, great. And they were great. They, and they're faultless. I go, look, I go, 
Nobody makes a mistake. Every And this is live, and there's another band playing the music. We'd never done that before. We have to listen to someone else playing. So that before, we'd always accompanied ourselves. We were not used to having a... And they were in a pit, and they hated us, the guys in the pit. They were looking at us, <laughs> oh, gee, look, that crap. Look, <laughs> well, I, I advise everyone to watch... Herman's Hermit. It's on YouTube. How did, you, <laughs> how did your working I class... I thought it was great. Gilbert, I knew he'd love it. How did your working class parents feel about you entertaining oh. the royal family? You know, I mean, that must have been... One of my greatest regrets is I never, ever said to my parents, I'm happy that you're proud of my work. You know what I mean? You, I never thought to use... I never went home and said, Hey, Dad, what do you think of that? Thanks for, you know, getting me... I never... Thank them for getting me into whatever place I got to. You know, and that's yeah. well, my only regret is that I never thanked my parents properly for being, you know, letting me live with my grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> but, but Which opened up kind of a lot of pressure. And I, I saw something Paul uh, By the way, just a sec, the Queen Mother was cool because I, 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 you know, that line where you're standing and I'm sort of kowtowing it's the queen it, this is the royal family and i'm like a real loyal british citizen especially then uh, and i'm i'm like bowing in front of her as if she's like you know jesus like big this is a big deal and and she she very kindly says um you had won the best dressed man in england twice <laughs> and one of her relatives uh Ant anthony snowden lord snowden had also tied with me one year <laughs> Tied as, I, was, I was like the co-best dressed man of the year so she knew about the best dressed man because it was part of her family that she goes that's a lovely suit and I said you know the, the material's English but I had it made in France it wasn't it wasn't an English tailor and she goes oh yes your wife's from France isn't she and I was like she must have read the bio before the show. Wow. That she knew that I was married to a Frenchman. Why? And that she, con she connected all the dots, and she was probably 80. Did and, her homework. And, yeah. And, uh, and then I realized probably they all do their homework. Yeah, probably. Well, when, wherever they people go. briefing them. Yeah. And, and I saw something. I think Paul Schaefer was stalking to you. Stalking me, yeah. Yeah, was, stalking yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and you said they used to call you, I'll see if I'm pronouncing it correctly, a yup with a Yiddish cup. Yuck. A yuck. Yuck. <laughs> I'm the yuck with the Yiddish cup because nobody knows how this happened. <laughs> Nobody knows how this happened. Could you explain? <laughs> I'm going to try and explain. In Manchester, there was a thing called the JLB, which was the Jewish Lads Brigade. And there was a girl who went there. Her name was Wendy Herman. It's really weird. I'm, I'm not in Herman's Hermits, but I used to go to the jail, Jewish Lads Brigade. And for some reason, nobody questioned me. What are you doing here? And, and the Jewish Lads Brigade was like people, young English Jewish boys who would fight if anybody started stirring up any more trouble. So I was very attracted to me. I'd like a fight. I'd fight for that. Yeah. Something worth fighting for, you know. Instead of fighting over who gets the next drink, I can fight for something that means something. So so I'm friends with this, and Graham Gouldman is a oh, member. And Harvey Lisberg, who's my manager, eventually is. They're all members of this sect. 
this little place that I'm not even part of, but I'm a, a musician, so I can play there, and eventually I'm called Herman's Hermit, so they think I'm the yock with the Yiddish cop. That, that <laughs> they think that I'm smarter than I really am, because I, cause all the newspapers are saying, the happiest millionaire, the luckiest millionaire, one hit record, and they've got a million pound deal from the label. And I've got, I'm going to the newspaper, no, 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 it's a million dollars... And I've got 11 partners. <laughs> you know, I've not got the million. Because <laughs> Cub is... Uh, head. Yeah, head. Yok means I'm not and, Jewish. And, and, and the Yiddish cop means my, I've got a Jewish brain. Oh, it's like a Goyesh Punim. Right, Gil? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. How exactly. Schaefer guy. But, yeah. A Yiddish cop. Do I have like, that right there? Cop. <laughs> yeah, it's like a compliment. It means someone smart. For some reason, yeah. yeah, for some reason, I could speak Yiddish better than most of the okay. people. I'm not going to oh. do it anymore because I've forgotten all, most of it. But oh, I, God damn I do it. now, I do Bruno Yiddish. Yes. You know, Aston Flippen Tavern. And my wife understands. My wife is from Strasbourg where they speak a, a, a dialect. And I can, I can make her fall on the floor laughing when I, do, when I speak German or Yiddish to her. She so so you were able to speak Yiddish years ago? Yeah, when I was a kid, for, because I lived in this culture where almost 100% of the people in the culture were, were speaking Yiddish. Just happened to be that neighborhood that I was in because I I wanted to be part of theirs. That that, that there was a band called the Mockingbirds, which which Graham Goodman was in, which was my favorite sort of local band, and they would they're the one, they they'd made the first recording of For Your Love, which was which re-recorded as well. There was three versions. There was the Mockingbirds, then there was the the Herman's Hermits version, and then the Yardbirds got it right. They had the hit. For your love, and they and they would also do. But they recorded "Bus Stop," which we did, and then the Hollies had a number one with. We used to give all these songs to our friends. We never ever spoke to any of them ever again after we gave them the hit song. <laughs> but I was gonna say, yeah, why did why the Hermits recorded "Bus Stop" and "For Your Love," but you didn't put it out. We you didn't could, put them we out. didn't think there were singles. You, you know, we, we had this. We we tried to make singles every time we went in the studio. We were trying to make a a, a single. And the ones that failed were called album tracks and right. B sides. Mickey Most didn't think those were hits. Those those songs. He, he, we wouldn't. He, we wouldn't have ever recorded it. If he didn't think they were hits. Yeah, I see. We, you wouldn't have rolled. You wouldn't have wasted the money on tape. I see. He was a genius, Mickey Most, because he could make you believe. I'd be singing Mrs. Brown, you got lovely. He never liked Mrs. Brown, you got lovely daughter. It was just we needed one more track for an album. And I see. Every song in our set list was. Already somebody else had made a record of it, so we can't do that. We can't do Roll Over, Bay Over. We can't do Reeling and Rocking. We can't do this because the, you can't do... So all the popular local songs were already recorded. So he so, said, what else have you got? I said, well, yeah, Keith showing up. Clunk, 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 clunk. Oh, okay. So don't worry, we can put it on the... We put it track three on side two of the album. No one will ever get that far. That's He truly believed that, that people wouldn't listen to the whole Herman's Herman's That's album. interesting. Yeah. That that came from a Tom Courtney movie, the, uh, uh, a, Mrs. Play. Mrs. a play, Mrs. You, a, te you know, a televised play. You know what happened? It's it's a really odd story. There was it was a play written by Tom, by um forgotten his name now, but a play, and Tom Courtney was in it, and Tom Courtney during the opening segment sang 
Mrs. Brownie got a lovely daughter, and Keith Hopwood, this guy who was in in Herman's Hermits, he had this guitar called a Gretsch Country Gentleman, and it had a damper on it, um, a Chet Atkins version. It has like a little. It's hard to explain on the radio, but it had a little damper that that made it supposedly sound like a banjo. Okay, but banjo is open string sounding thing so it's not it wasn't clang it was more and we were both watching this thing and we were both watching the the play at the same time in different buildings and uh you know he was at his mom's house and i was at my grandma's house so my tv was much louder than his so i could hear it and and they they sing this song at the beginning of this play and it's got that and i said and so i said keith you know, did you see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That song's great. It's a great song. It's Tom Courtney. It's a, I think we should try and get a record. And you know, we could use. That's the one place we can use that Gretsch country gentleman. He spent a lot of money. I think it was three hundred quid. When three hundred pounds was what the Beatles were getting paid for a show, so it was a lot of money. This guitar, and um, we work it out, and it is incredibly incredibly difficult to play Mrs. I've not met a guitar player who can play it as good as the 16-year-old Keith Hotwood plays it on the record. Wow. You? It is really... That's cool. It's intense and very difficult what he did. It's very difficult. And we recorded it as a, you know, and it, they, some disc jockey in Philadelphia or something played the song for 24 hours. But once upon a time, DJs could, like, change... Oh, thought. sure. Oh, that yeah, comes up a really lot on powerful. this show. Yeah. And we had to put it out, and we said, we're not putting that out as a single. That'll ruin our careers. You know, we've got more serious stuff than that. <laughs> we're like a punk band. You know, we want to sing a song like that. No Milk Today. We want, like, you know, songs, like, good songs about real things. And you, So you never Mickey, put Mickey, that Mickey out? Said, Mickey says, it's got 400,000 advance orders. What day are you putting it out? <laughs> <laughs> How quickly they... Have you heard Gilbert's version of Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter? No, but I bet I'm going to. <laughs> the fear in this man's eyes, yeah. Gilbert. <laughs> Which can, they, can, they also can't see on the radio. Yeah. Can, can we do something good first? Oh, you do whatever you want. It's your show. <laughs> I was trying to segue into that. Why do you want to do something oh, good first? Okay, well, we have time what, for both. Well, it's a warm-up. Okay. Okay, we'll do <laughs> We'll got, do Mrs. Brown. He's got his process, Peter. I don't want yeah. to... Have just, you written new words for it? No. <laughs> no, no. No. Okay. You sure Jackie the Joke Man Marsling hasn't written you some rude script for it? Uh, do we have this Mrs. Brown up? looks okay. older than she ought to. Are you okay. okay with a karaoke background? Because that's, that's all we've got. I love it. Here we go, Gil. Why don't, why don't you let Peter start, and then you'll pick it up from here. I'll pick it up from Tell Her? Yeah. So, this way, Peter will he will acquaint the audience. He will, he will acclimate them to what it actually is. Oh, so I sing a bit. You start, oh, you start okay. us off. Here we go. There goes nothing. It's pretty good. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter Girls as sharp as her are something rare But it's sad She doesn't love me now She's made it clear enough It ain't no good to pine 
return. Oh. And she wants to return those things I bought her. <laughs> Tell her she, she can, can keep, keep them just, just the same. same. Walking about. She, she doesn't, doesn't love me now. She's made it clear enough. He ain't no good to pie. You know the tune, Gilbert. <laughs> Walking around, even in a crowd. Well, you'll pick her out. Makes a bloke feel so proud. Good one, Teddy finds that I've been around to see you. There we go. Tell her that I'm well and feeling fine. Feeling fine. Don't on. Don't say she's broke my heart. I don't know nobody's best. No good to mine. Walking around. Even in a crowd now. You'll be Makes a bloke feel so proud Divide <laughs> <laughs> got a lovely daughter Lovely daughter Mrs Brown, you've got a lovely daughter <laughs> Mrs Brown, you've got a lovely daughter <laughs> Wow, that would never have been a single that should go on side two, track three. But I'm really impressed with your knowledge of the song. So am I. You've obviously, you've obviously heard it before. Uh, at least twice. <laughs> oh, God, I hope your wife's deaf. Not a, not a bad Gilbert Gottfried impression, Peter. Oh, really? Yes. I, just, I just shouted as loud as I could. That's that's all it is. And I, I just I just just didn't go anywhere near the melody. All the all the rhythm, you know. I said one is where you want it. It's like working with Ginger Baker. You're just supposed to imagine where one is. And if you don't know it's because you haven't done heroin with me and Phil Seaman. Yeah. Beware Mr. Baker. Beware Gottfried singing. We, we might put you through another one later, but before I get off this track, <laughs> what a lovely day we're having here. More vocals do, with Mr. Do, Gottfried. Do tell, you mentioned Elvis before. Do tell us about meeting Elvis. And you got to interview him. Yeah, incredible. It's the worst interview. When are you coming to England? Is also how on YouTube. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah. You know you know what happened was we saw, we were in Hawaii. We had one day off. We, it says in, in, the, in the story that Peter Noon is meeting Elvis Presley on his day off from a 360-day tour. We were so young and stupid that our agents figured we had one more yes, year left in the business and to sell us every night everywhere. So we'd go France, Belgium, Holland, Germany, Italy, Israel, Hong Kong, and we end up uh, day 196 with a day off in Honolulu because there's been a time change. We've earned a day. Mm -hmm. And um, in the hotel, we see Colonel Tom Parker, who to me is one of the most fascinating people on the planet. And he's got the cigar and the hat and the fake Texas thing going. And we coerce him into letting us meet Elvis 
who is there making a movie. And there's a DJ called Tom Moffat who plans the whole thing. And he said, I could set it up, and but you will say it's it. You're going to do an interview with him because he met the Beatles and he didn't have a really good time with them because he thought he thought they were disrespectful. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean that's just an aside. So yeah, there's going to be nothing but maximum respect from Peter Noon, whose watch is now saying, "Have you fallen over?" I don't know why it's. I have to say no because I, otherwise it calls nine one one. So I meet. I meet. <laughs> so so we get. So we get in this car. Peter's ignoring a warning on his wristwatch. Yeah. Have you hey, fallen hey, over? Must have been that singing. While there's an interruption, because I'm missing a page. <laughs> okay. I need you to print up. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to sing an Elvis song, Something are you? Something good. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, they'll, they'll, and, they'll and, prep it for you. big print. They'll prep it for you. I know the words. He's <laughs> so, so, they, so they arranged to take us, and we've got to be in the car at 5 a.m., so me and Barry the drum, Barry Whitwem, the drummer from Hermit's Hermits, stay up all night. Because when you're young, you think, if I stay up, I'm definitely not, I'll be ready. Yeah. I'll be ready at sure. five o'clock. Otherwise, the rest of the Hermits all overslept. They didn't make the five o'clock wake up thing that, you know, to me, Elvis, because they were tired, you know, 192 days on the road. So we, we get in this car and they take us up there. And the, the best part is Elvis punks us. They take us into this hut. It's all these Hawaiian huts. He's making a movie, Paradise Hawaiian style or something. I okay. can't remember. And we walk in and there's an Elvis flat out on the floor, uh, face down, as if he's just been out at a party with Keith Richards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a wimp, like done, fixed, like, oh, somebody has dropped him off there after a big night out just taking him out of the taxi and throwing him in this hut. So we're standing there, we don't know what to do. And then Elvis walks in and, and he looks like Elvis Presley, like the most beautiful guy I ever saw in my life. I go, but he's in makeup and he's ready to go for a movie. So they've made him up and he looks like Elvis Presley. Wow. And I'm like in shock just from seeing him because he's this idol figure in my world you know like they've got statues of jesus and saint francis of assisi but we've got a statue at home of elvis you know my sister is like a big elvis fan and i don't know what to do but i've got this microphone i wish they'd stop calling me on my watch excuse me so can you hear that that's all right so so elvis is there and he goes he goes i had i put this microphone in in front of him and i say um my sister has a phone and I've called her from the Hawaiian hotel. Throw this bloody watch in the toilet, will you? <laughs> so my sister, on the I call her. She lives in Liverpool, and her husband works in Ellesmere Port in a car factory. And I've called her. I'm meeting Elvis Presley. Denise, can you believe it? I'm going to meet Elvis Presley. But I've got to ask him some questions. You got any good questions? She goes... Ask him, does he dye his hair? <laughs> and you did. <laughs> so I look at Elvis, and the, what's going through my head is I've got to introduce him. I've got to, to make this interesting. So I say, when are you coming to England? And he goes on this long lie kind of thing. The reason he's not going to England because Colonel Parker's got a bad hip and he can't fly. We don't know that. Colonel Parker doesn't have a green card or an immigration state. We know yeah. this only comes out forty years later. 
So I'm listening to this story, oh, shame about the thing, but all the time I'm looking at his hair. So my brain isn't working on all the stuff, the thing, all the questions that I got, all that I got. I'm like, he does dye his hair. You can tell he dyes his hair. <laughs> also wears a lot of makeup. You know what I mean? Because he's on a movie set and his hair is perfect. And he's, he, I look at him, I'm like, his clothes are perfect. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I feel like this is the most beautiful. I didn't know I would ever find a man beautiful, but this is one. <laughs> I didn't know that I was going to go, wow, this is really, this is, a, this is like one of those moments like when I saw the Beatles in that field. That you go, shit, this guy's got the whole thing. He's got the whole package. And he's funny. He's making jokes. You, you don't know it, the part about Elvis. He's a bit of a character because they don't want him to do interviews. They want everybody to think he's like a truck driver kind of. Dun, hung on, hung on. But he's like being funny. And I say, who's your favorite group? And he goes, oh, I like the Beatles and the Stones and... And Herman's Hermits, of course. You know, like that. You see the Boston Pops. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I all he... these clowns that he's got working for him who weren't around, his friends who weren't around when he died, you know, like, oh, son, yeah, he's been in the bathroom for 11 hours. Perhaps we should go and check him out. All these guys are there just laughing at everything he says and not laughing at anything I say. <laughs> it was like a competition. <laughs> Fools. And I'm friends with some of those guys still. You know, some of them were cool, but... Their job was to make everything Elvis did better and more funny than it really was. What are you, 16 at this point? 17? 17, like yeah. That. I was really, your, really Your naive. questions are so cute. People can see it. It's online. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, dear. yeah. The whole oh, dear. thing is there. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's that's the great thing about the internet. Things that you thought were covered, like my grandmother burning down houses. Well, listen, as, I, had as, write that, I had to write what? that one down. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, after this, what did you find out about the colonel? What disgusting? You know, well, you know, I, I I stayed friends with him because he was he was a I I was interested in him as a character. Once I'm doing a gig in in uh, in um, Las Vegas, and he lived at the Las Vegas Hilton. He was in his final five years. He lived at the Las Vegas Hilton. He had a room there that he and he would be found in the lobby taking groups to see the Elvis suite, charging $20 or something, and all day on a $5 poker machine. He was a big gambler. So perhaps that's why they gave him a room there. But he was a character, and he had lots of fun stories, you know, about being being in a circus and finding his way to Texas because you could in Texas you could play poker with money on the table if you had a hotel room. So he obviously got off a ship from Rotterdam in Norfolk, Virginia, Roanoke, found his way to Dallas and played cards and was not successful <laughs> and ended up on the road and, you know, found himself in a circus. And he would tell the story that they, they said, come and see the animal. And his idea, I said, get yourself, uh, put animals up there. And they said, well, 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 they were from Hungary or something. They said, well, we've only got one animal. Being honest, you know what I mean? He says, well, we'll just throw a bucket of paint on and put a different girl on it and take the animal, take the take the elephant around the building, bring it back in the other <laughs> door. It was brilliant. And, you know, he'd tell me stories like, you know, I'd say, I'd say you know, well, we ran into this union problem because British musicians had problems with the union in America. And I'm a union guy. My dad was in a union. I was in the union. So I never had a problem. And so he got a problem. And he said, well, what I, what I used to do, I can't do his accent, but he said, what I used to do is like, if we'd run into that problem and they'd say, you know, he had a trio at the beginning, Elvis Presley at the beginning had a three, trio, like the most brilliant trio. 
and the musicians, you need to employ 12 people. This is the rule of this room is there needs to be 12 musicians paid. And you'd make them play six in the ladies' room and six in the men's room. He would make them play. If you're going to pay you, you're going to play. And that, that was kind wow. of... We don't know if it's true, but it was a great anecdotal story about a union. And and he was a character. So I'd say, I'm playing this gig I'm to, in another casino. And it's Paul Revere and the Raiders and Peter Noon, Herman of Herman's Hermits. And he's charging the wrong money. I said, what? It was $40. It's a good deal. He said, $39.95. I said, oh, what does that mean? He said, people, there's a barrier at 40 Interesting. He still thought he was in the, a, a businessman, yeah, through and through, all the time, completely making, giving me suggestions on how to run my business, even though he was like an old geezer. And and you knew, uh, well, at least you hung out with Bob Dylan. Well, only I didn't really hang out with him. I just would find myself sitting at a table next to him often, and Captain Beefheart and John Lennon. I'd, people would invite us, because when you were a pop star in those days, you'd get invited to like a new group. If, uh, if uh, somebody had a new group that they wanted to promote, they'd invite whoever was in town to come and be seen in the audience. Now it's Paris Hilton. But in those days, it was John Lennon, Bob Dylan, and that kid from Herman's Hermits. Maybe they won't let him in because he's only 17, but, you know, if he's with John Lennon, they'll give him a drink. So I would I would be sat next to him often. It just was one of those people that, whenever I came to New York, I had a friend in New York called Gloria Stavers, who was the editor of 16 Magazine, and she was the coolest woman I ever met. She was like from another generation. And where, powerful too. Very powerful. Yeah. And, and she would tell, I'd come into town, I'd, I didn't really know what to do. And she said, go to this place, go to this place, go to this place. And one day I saw, one day she got, she, I, she, I go, I'm coming into New York. And she said, don't bother. What do you mean don't bother? She said, your thing's all over. I said, oh, you mean the monkeys? She said, oh no. Jim Morrison, Alice Cooper, you're done. It's a good friend, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows who you are anymore. The whole business has changed, and it's now Alice Cooper and Jim. I remember the words. I go, who the hell is Alice Cooper? Some girl c- taking over the... <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was true. The business went overnight from being pop stars and Bob Dylan and Beatles and monkeys to... That next level Keep, which kept was, changing. Well, yeah. of course, and and you know the Beatles themselves and the British Invasion acts knocked out a lot of those. Yeah, a lot, Chuck Berry and and yeah, Fats yeah, Domino know, and a lot I'm, of their heroes. It was just disturbing. So it's it was just disturbing to tell to be told that my career was over and name the people who had ruined it. What do you remember about coming to the states for the first time and 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 entering? Uh, it, 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 it was joining a, up with Dick Clark's review. The, 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 I would suggest. That any 15, 16 year old boy has an experience like that because we saw the real America. We were kids from, mm-hmm. you know, provincial England, had a taste of London, and we get on a bus with Billy Stewart, Ike Turner, Little Anthony and the Imperials. Sure. Who, we connected instantly with Little Anthony and the Imperials because we knew who they were and they knew who we were. And they'd been us once before in a completely different culture. In our culture, people wanted to beat us up because we had uh, different clothes and long hair. Are you a boy or a girl? Always turned into a fight. We we couldn't accept. What do you mean, oh, boy? You, see, there's a, you know any girls with one of these? And then there'd be a big fight and stuff would happen. 
we came over here and we thought, whoa, this is a completely... But they knew who we were because right. they'd had that kind of stuff of course. happen to them. Because This is 65 so, when you came? 64, late 64 or 65, late 64. yeah. And, you know, we'd play in cities where, you know, our managers would say, you should close tonight. You should, you know, because when we started on the tour, we were the opening act. You know, it was like, it was like uh, Little Anthony Imperials, Bobby V, Freddie Kenner, and from England, direct from England... Herman's Hermits, right? But by the halfway through the tour, we had three records in the top 20. And our manager saying, you should close the show. Sometimes we'd walk out onto the stage. We didn't know. We didn't know any better. We'd walk out on the stage and it would be a 100% black audience. And we'd have to sort of change the show. You know, we got Mrs. Brown, you got a lovely daughter coming up. This is not going to work with this crowd. You know, being cute is not going to work after that somebody's just done, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, with the splits and everything. Now we're going to stand up like these wooden little English twerps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, following that, so we just, yeah, some nights we better let Anthony go on after us. He, he, they were fantastic. Oh, they were so fantastic. And, and, every, and during that tour, Bobby V had this band that My, Myron Cohen and the and the Caddies, but terrible name for the band, the Caddies. Sounds like you're carrying someone else's gear, doesn't it? <laughs> so <laughs> halfway through the tour, this is it's a perfect experience for you. Halfway through the tour, there was this beautiful girl on the bus, um, and Round Robin, who is this guy from America, and Billy Stewart, who was this three hundred and eighty pound fantastic person who I sat next to on every bus ride basically because I he weighed 380 pounds so seven eighths of the seat was taken up by him and I was last on the bus because I was doing the promotion so my arse my arse would fit into one eighth of the seat I weighed 110 pounds so between us with the 500 pound people so one day a round Robin gets on the bus and fires a couple of rounds at Billy Stewart. I don't know how he missed him because he was a 380. Oh, I would have, I could have, a couple of yeah. rounds. Yeah, yeah, boom, boom. So I learned to how to eat cigarette ends and bits of pieces, chewing gum wrappers that were on the floor of the bus. And that night, Dick Clark shows up and said, we're going to get you a station wagon like Bobby V. Because Bobby V was at a station wagon that we... And we'll get you a driver because we know you're not old enough to drive. And, we'll get, and we got this guy called Randy who drove us all around America. And we followed Bobby V. By the second day, Bobby V had introduced Herman's Hermits to a thing called the Cherry Bomb, which was a piece of dynamite <laughs> packed in a cherry. So we would be driving behind all giddy little English schoolboys, you know. And out of the window of his station wagon would come this smoking thing that would explode and basically four out of five hermits would shit their pants <laughs> and I never did I never did the glory days of rock and roll yeah <laughs> but we were of course the first stop first time we ever got to talk to Bobby V about what was this item that he just introduced us to um <laughs> it, it was called a cherry bomb and we said where'd you get it and he said well you can't get them in this state you can only get them when we go to Ohio so we waited every day now we knew what was coming out of the window every time the windows rolled down and remember windows rolled down slowly because it was a winder you could see the window coming ah here comes another one of those things and the next time we bought one and one of the I think it was Bobby Keys the saxophone player Bobby Keys was, was in the Stones I think he says 
you should try dropping it in the toilet. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're kids from Good England, times. you know. We're kids from... We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> it, it blows the bathroom wall out. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, you know, but we always... We always once we knew that, we always paid for the bathroom wall before we, dropped, <laughs> we, we were on it. Speak, I'm going to make a segue here. Speaking of destroying bathrooms and explosions, tell us something about your, your friendship with Keith Moon. Well, we introduced him to the Cherry Bombs. Ah. Uh. You know, they were, every time we would, we became the, the old timers. So we'd bring the animals on tour and we'd show them cherry bombs and of course they used them and eventually used them as weapons. But we, then we bought the Hollies and Wayne Fontana and by the time they'd finished the tour, Wayne they knew Fontana all about a cherry bomb. And then we brought the Who over and of course they took it to the next level. They dropped it in soon so that it was way up into the plumbing system before it exploded. <laughs> And you could take out a whole floor, really, with it. You know? <laughs> and Keith loved that. And it was we were there when he first did it. You know, it's like when they when they want to claim stuff, like he put the car in the pool. Yeah. The people who were there would sure. I defy you. Go to a holiday and try and get a car past the ice machine and the wall. There's no car can get through there. And they always had that white railing around. We thought of all that stuff, but you can't get a car in America in a pool. It's, it's safe for children. <laughs> was there, was there a story about Keith Moon's infamous birthday party at, at the yeah, Holiday Inn? It's in, a big it, story because it, in Flint. Yeah, it, remember we're English schoolboy twits. Uh, twit is short for nitwit. Just so you know that. It's I not think of a the, swear pi the Python yeah. sketch, the, twi yeah. the twit of the year. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. we were we were really twits, and we didn't have much going. You know, we always ordered the same thing in a restaurant because we'd seen we if we went for a drink. We'd have whatever they were having. I'll have a Singapore sling. Me too. Vodka, Jim. I'll have one of those. Yeah, because we didn't know anything. We only knew beer. So we didn't know. So the who come and is having his 20. He says it's his 21st birthday party because he can drink if he's 21 in this state. So, and he was already drinking. So he'd do, <laughs> make it legal. <laughs> so this is my 21st birthday. So we order. We had this guy called Bob Levine, who was the tour, our tour manager from the very beginning. He was always there. And his job was to go to the hotel manager and negotiate for a room for us to destroy because we were nice people. We wanted to <laughs> pay, we wanted to prepay for any damage, you know, so they, they couldn't say, oh, that was how much guy. <laughs> so he goes to the manager, he says, look, I, I know this is unusual, but it's somebody's birthday party tonight and they're going to destroy a room. Have you got a room that, you, that you're going to redecorate soon and we'll use that room so that we uh, minimalize the cost? <laughs> So I remember the room, it was downstairs, and it had one of those concertina doors on it. You know, those, like a concert, the doors that go like that. And he said, just, just this side here. I remember standing there going, well, can't we have that? No, 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 don't, don't leave that room. We're just done it. And we, we, we negotiate to have this one room on the side uh, of this half of a room. And we ordered 100 birthday cakes. And, and I remember that when Bob Levine, this guy, was ordering, they said, well, they're not going to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to eat them. <laughs> and, we, and, and it was like so bizarre because it was like suddenly we're in this room downstairs and everybody is in their underwear, just their underwear because they know that it's going to be a pie thing. <laughs> it's a non-sexual pie-throwing orgy. With 100 birthday cakes. 100 birthday cakes. And they're all laid out ready for it. And of course... 
Keith Moon walks in and gets it immediately, and he gets down to his wife fronts, and he throws the first cake. But then, fifty cakes. Everybody, everybody throws a cake at him. Everybody is going to plaster him because his birthday, and we've paid for the room. So he's getting all these cakes, and he climbs up on the table because he was very, he was a very fit guy, and he climbs up on the table and he starts throwing this cake, and. I don't know if you've ever thrown a cake while standing on a four mica top. <laughs> I can't say that. He slipped, and he slipped, and he hit his face <laughs> on the table like that. Boom. And he knocked his front tooth. He broke half of his front tooth off. Of course, we thought that was funny. You guys falling on his face and fuck, he's bleeding. He's bleeding. <laughs> and then the the... It is a dangerous thing to. I don't. I, it's probably very painful, and they come and the, his road manager or his Chris, his Chris Stamp gets him and they take him out and they take him to a dentist and he's he's going to miss the next gig and we're all worried now. Like being so professional, will he make the next gig? <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> so we get him a helicopter and they fly him onto the next. We go and send him a helicopter and pick him up all for his birthday. See, and that was the end of it really. And he then. Then what happens? It gets a bit out of control and he's gone, but the party is not over. And we're all running around in our wife fronts and some other <laughs> men in the hotel say, those guys, look, they're all those girls. They're having a load of fun. Let's join them. So now complete strangers are joining us in their underwear. <laughs> men. <laughs> men. And they're running around. So we've run out of cakes. So we take those fire hydrants off the wall there and start... Shooting oh them God. up, firing the fire hydrant. We don't know that that's poisonous and can make you go blind. <laughs> and, they're, <laughs> and they're chasing us with them, oh. and it's going on all the cars. And that fire, that foam in those things takes the paint off all those cars. And the bike, God was thinking for Herman's Hermits that night and our bankers, because these men, it was their cars. We didn't have a car. We we came on a bus and. All the paint was gone off their cars, but they all worked for Mutual of Omaha Insurance. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> worked geez. out. They worked out great for us. Wow. They were all insurance men, and their cars had been destroyed. Oh. And Moon turned that to driving a car in a swimming pool. There was a lot of damage to cars, but none of them went in the pool. What a character. Oh, he's a, he was so much fun. You know, and I was kind of, this is so pathetic. I was his minder. Moon and Noon, Amazing. the Loon Twins, because I was a bit crazy. And, and we, I would say, you know, his manager, he had a really nice guy manager called Kit Lambert, who was a very gentle, nice human being. And he would say, would you, would you do me a favor? Would you watch out for Keith? Because, you know, he gets in trouble every now and then. And, and, <laughs> oh. and he trusted me to look after him. So I, I took it upon myself and said, Keith, ever been water skiing? So every day, wherever we were, we would find somebody who would take us water skiing. It was summer. And we'd, I'd take him water skiing, not knowing that water skiing with a bottle of vodka in one hand <laughs> isn't really that good. But <laughs> when you fall, you don't hurt yourself. At least so you're much. not falling on Fort Micah. But every day we'd go, there's pictures of me and Keith Moon in Fort Lauderdale and all over America, we'd find a place, we'd get there at 10 o'clock in the morning and I'd take it, thinking that was how he got fit. Not knowing that drinking all day was not a good thing. Because well, I could do it, so why couldn't he? It, it, go and, ahead, Gil. And, and okay, now before 
because there was an argument. <laughs> I didn't, you know, something good, feeling fine, something good yeah. is, is, is my is my song the one I'm it's, good It's with. called oh. I'm Into Something Good. Wait a second. I'm into something good. After all those terrible stories, you're going to sing now? Yes, yes, and you're going to sing with me. Okay. I, I, fine. He, he fine. won't know the, the, the tune. I'm just giving you a fair warning, Peter. Oh, I know the tune really well. Maybe you can carry him. You've, you've sung let's, it before? Let's sing it together. Oh, okay. <laughs> with apologies okay. to Carol King. All right. Here we go. Here we go. Woke up this morning, morning feeling fine. There's something special on my mind. Last night I met a new girl in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Something tells me I'm into something good. Take it. Go ahead, Gil. She's the kind of girl who's not too shy. And I can tell I'm her kind of guy. She danced close to me like I hoped she would. Well, yeah. Something tells me I'm into something good. Bridge, we only danced for a minute or two. Then she stuck close to me the whole night through. Can I be falling in love? Cause she's everything I've been dreaming of. She's everything I've been dreaming of. <laughs> I walked her when she held my hand. hand. I knew I it would be could. just a one night stand. So, so I asked to see in the street. Something tells me I'm into something good. No, no, wait a second. I feel like Ginger Baker now. <laughs> uh, let the guitar player go. Okay. okay. You're just looking admiration over the guitar player. Okay. Here we go. More coming now. I walked her home and she held my hand. I knew it would have been just a one night stand. So I asked her to say I She told me I could. Oh, yeah. Something tells me I'm into something good. Something tells me I'm into something good. Do one on your own. Something tells me I'm into something good. Let me do one. Something tells me I'm into something good. Good. <laughs> that was marvelous. Oh. I never thought I never thought anyone could make me feel that musical. It's good. You know, I come I come from a musical family and no one ever did that. Thank you for letting me share that with you. That, that was a- beautiful, Peter. You're a brave soul. I hope I can I hope I can still sing like that tonight. <laughs> Do I have time for five minutes of questions from, from listeners, Peter? Yeah, real, go. Real yeah. quick. This is fun. This, this is, is fun for a change. Uh, Andrew Hirsch says, I don't have a question. I just want to thank Peter for making my uncle happy in his unfortunately short life. His uncle was a huge 
Herman's Hermits fan. Oh, well, that's good. I hope, I, hope, I hope Herman's Hermits made lots of people happy. Yes. Allison Ward says, in August of 1965, you kindly signed an autograph for a shy 15-year-old girl who was terrified to approach you in suburban Virginia. Huh. And now 55 years later, that same woman wants to know, what's the most outrageously forward thing a fan ever did to get your attention? Oh, I couldn't possibly tell you that. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Last night I did, we went to the Philippines and, and Mrs. Marcos had asked us to do a song that we didn't know. It was recorded by Herman Sermons and we'd just been with the Beatles in England and I said, we're going to the Philippines. What's it like? And John said, uh, just say yes to everything which we didn't know what that even meant. Oh. So we got over there and they said, Mrs. Marcos would like you to sing one little packet of cigarettes. And it's, a stu- it's the stupidest song. It is the stupidest, most ridiculous song. And it's about a guy who writes a girl's address on a packet of cigarettes. Who ever did something so stupid? A phone number, a phone number, an email address. Excuse me, uh, I'm attracted to you. Could you give me your address? No, never happened. But that's the song. And I've looked here and I've looked there. Under table, under chair. I've looked up, I've looked down. And one little packet cannot be found. What a stupid idea for a song. But I, I, I regret quite a few things in the songs, but that is one. So we had to do, we had to go in the dressing room and learn the song. Um, we only played it once, ever. And I did it last night because somebody requested it. Uh, somebody from the Philippines requested wow. it. Wow. Wow. So, second time in my life was yeah, last night. And a lot, of bad thing, a lot of bad things have been written on bits of tissue paper. You know, I've had a drink in them already. <laughs> but some wonderful things. <laughs> yeah, they're mostly what they'd like to do with your little winky wanky woo. <laughs> Tell us about to get, let's let's get to the plugs. You're still doing the serious show. Yeah, I do I do it got it's on every Saturday. Every Saturday. Uh, yeah, uh, Saturday afternoon, sixties on six serious yep. XM. Yes. And it is called ironically after after that duet. It's called something, something good. Something good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that was kind of good if you like that kind of stuff. And your and your dates, people can go to your website and, and find out where you're going to be. You're here at the Iridium in New York yeah. this week. Yeah, and you're I'm, gonna I'm be always somewhere. I'm everywhere. Up, yeah, I do 100, about 150 a year. You'll know what that's like. The road is pretty good fun, really. 150 a year. Yeah. Wow. It's it's crazy. I do three a week. I told my I told my agent I've only got 10 more years. I keep saying 10 more years. I've been here for like at least 10 years. I've been saying 10 more years. It just started again today, the 10 more years. And I say, I want to work every Saturday. Book all the Saturdays. And when you've booked all the Saturdays, get me the Fridays. And then when you've booked all the Fridays, get me a pick on pickup date on either end. Because then, you know, last night, um, my friend told me I should call my show the Peter Noon Solo No Band Per Diem Show. <laughs> so because you want to get you i want to keep my my men on the road um making money you know so you don't want to go out and get stuck in you know i see these all these bands out there stuck on the road that, that'll kill you getting stuck in you know some town in the middle of nowhere for three days off so we don't take days off we go home i, I leave on thursday and i get home on monday every week i admire you my friend you're still out there 
doing I, it I still and making enjoy, people you know, happy. People think that there's something wrong with me for enjoying my job, but I really do enjoy it. I like my, I'm lucky, see, because it's always been about the songs. My dad used to say, it's all about the songs. You, you know, why don't you get someone good opening for you, like the Stones, instead of that bloody Freddie and the Dreamers, that's setting <laughs> yourself up. So, so, so it doesn't work like that, Dad. He says, no, you're right. It's all about the songs. It's all about, and, and I've got all those great songs. Of course. I, I sing them and I'm, I'm so proud of them. You know, I go, who, who got the luck? You know, I, I, once I was hanging, this is a, like, Roy Orbison said to me, you know, I said, oh, I've got to sing Henry the He says, listen, there's only about, at the time, there's only 20 acts in the world who can go on the stage for 45 minutes and only sing their own material and the people will know all the songs. Yes, that's... And I stupidly said, have you got 45 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, and then the Bee Gees came along and the Eagles, and then, but yes. for a while it was like the stone. it was about 10 people. It was really few, very few people, so I'm, I'm lucky. I, I'm so grateful that I was there f to make those records because other people made a load of, we made versions of songs, like, like I said, Bust Up For Your Love. We should have had the singles of those. We just were not. We just weren't good at picking songs. You've made a lot of people happy for a long I time, so. and and we thank you. And we've wanted you here for a long time, and we're glad you're finally well, here. I, I was looking forward to it. And I knew that he'd be a load of fun. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't so sure about you because I've heard the show. I knew you're the serious one, but I knew. I knew he'd be a load of fun. I wasn't quite expecting. Am I too serious for you, Peter? No, no, no. But on the show, when I listen to the podcast, <laughs> yeah, you're we kind of very sort of. Shall I say mature comparatively? <laughs> I'll take the compliment. We want to thank Jackie Martling, our friend, yeah, for, for his Jackie. his role in finally nailing you down. We want to thank Carice, who's here, who's you been very get, patient. Thanks, Carice. You should ask Jackie Martling to to teach him the songs instead of just the words. <laughs> in the You've joined an exclusive club. We told you, Ron Dante, Tom James, Tommy James, Peter Asher. He sang with. Oh, Billy really? J. Kramer yeah. was here. Oh, good. He's, you... You're not the only one that suffered. Billy's <laughs> nice guy. They're all nice guys. Yeah. Nice all those guys. guys. Yes. I think probably one of the reasons they stayed in the business so long is probably because people liked them. Yeah, you know, they're likable people. people. Yeah, good people. And you come Ron back. Dante. Yeah, come back and play with us another time. That. Not tomorrow. Oh. I want to go home. <laughs> well, let me let me just do the wrap up. So this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we've been talking to a man who really should learn the lyrics to the Herman's Hermit song because it's pathetic. If I'm here, I'm a professional, and I want to work with someone who fucking knows the music and the lyrics. Peter, I, I got stuck with that second verse, same as the first. <laughs> I just keep singing the same words over and over and over. Go to Peter's website, find out where he's going to be. He's a great entertainer. The show is wonderful. And this was a treat. See what I mean? Thank Much you. more mature. <laughs> Somebody's got to be a pro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. There's a kind of hush all over the world tonight. All over the world, you can hear the sounds of lovers in love. You know what I mean? Just the two of us. Nobody else in sight. There's nobody else, and I'm feeling good just holding you tight. 